All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. I'm speaking to you from the borough of Queens in New York City. It is the 12th day of July, 2022. I want to thank each of you for listening to the show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. And I also want to invite you to keep your questions, comments, whatever they may be, send them along to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. Questions, the number for taylor at gmail.com. And, of course, we do want to thank our sponsors because without them there would be no show. Our sponsors for today's show, Irving Resources, Noble Resources, Eloro Resources, Core Assets Corp., SK Mining, Timberline Resources, Lion One Metals, and Reina Gold Corp. I've titled today's show, No, Inflation is Not Rolling Over. David Stockman and Nicholas Rodway return, and Peter Kraut, he's the author of a new book titled The Great Silver Bull, Visits for the First Time. Well, much to the surprise of Western leaders, consumer inflation has reared its ugly head for the first time in a major way since the 1970s. At first, they wrote off inflation as transitory, but that soon proved to be untrue, And so various countries led by the United States uh, have now begun a gentle credit tightening process leading to a correction in stock prices and major losses in U.S. Treasuries. Still, rates, of course, remain historically low. The hope is that by slowing the economy, consumer prices will head back toward that targeted 2% level. But regarding the idea of quickly taming inflation, David Stockman says, no, inflation is not rolling over. He will explain why the ruling elite and their policymakers will once again be disappointed and what ongoing inflation will mean for the markets. With sentiment uh, among gold and silver mining investors about as low as it's been for some time, might this be exactly the right time to think about adding some gold and silver exploration shares uh, to your portfolio? And one small cap junior gold company that appears to be on the verge of making a major silver and copper discovery this summer is Core Assets Corp. Nicholas Rodway will be with me right after our first commercial break to explain why you should pay attention to that company's exploration results at its blue property near Atlin, British Columbia. But right now, I'm happy to tell you that Peter Kraut, the author of, of a book titled The Great Silver Bull, is with me for the first time. Peter is also the author of a newsletter, Silverstock Investor, which you can subscribe to, I believe, by going to silverstockinvestor.com. Peter is a former portfolio advisor and a 20-year veteran of the resource markets uh, with a special expertise in precious metals, mining, and energy stocks. He is editor of two newsletters to help investors 
profit from metal market opportunities, uh, the silver stock investor, and gold resource investor as well. In those letters, Peter writes about what he is buying and selling. He takes no pay from companies for coverage. Peter has contributed numerous articles to Kitco, BNN, Bloomberg, The Financial Post, Seeking Alpha, Streetwise Reports, Investing.com, Talk Markets, and Bar Chart. Peter holds an MBA from McGill University. It's one of Canada's finest, for sure. He is the author, uh, as I just mentioned, of The Great Silver Bull. Uh, I listened to Peter's presentation on, on the silver markets at the June Metals Investor Forum in Toronto, and I have never heard a more compelling bullish case for silver than Peter gave in that talk. Uh, so I'm really pleased to welcome him uh, to the show for the first time. Thanks for joining us today, Peter. Well, it's certainly my pleasure, Jay. Thanks for having me. It's really good to have you there. And I, I would like to start out uh, because your partner, Gwen Preston, uh, has been on this show a number of times. I'd like to just ask what the business relationship is that you have with Gwen and her fine newsletter. Sure. So we connected about uh, two years ago now. Um, I was uh, doing some research on um, trying to get, I guess, set up to launch a newsletter and uh, was just inquiring a bit about how her um, operations were, were organized and set up and so on. And um, when I connected with Gwen, she asked me if I could uh, give her some uh, background and provide some samples of the kind of work that I'd done uh, over the previous year. Uh-huh. I'd actually been researching and writing um, on resources and precious metals in particular for about 15 years prior to mm. that. Mm-hmm. So we basically hit it off right away. Um, we had both seen what had happened um, in mid-2020 when the COVID pandemic hit. Um, I was really struck by what had happened with silver, gold and silver. But gold, um, you know, after hitting a low in March, along with silver, actually did very nicely, um, produced about a 40% return in the next five months. And silver actually produced a 150% return in the mm-hmm. next in those same five months and so it performed mm-hmm. almost four to one outperformed gold mm-hmm. uh, so Gwen and I, I looked saw this uh, said you know um, this is a sector that really is very much or a subsector that's very much underserved in the in the newsletter uh, research business and so uh, we decided to uh, to launch a, a silver focused newsletter which I uh, research and write uh, on a monthly and bi-monthly basis uh, that was launched in January of 2021, and a couple of months later, um, decided that you know I've done years worth of, of research uh, in silver, uh, have invested in the space, etc., and uh, thought, uh, given where I think things are going and uh, and uh, the, the background I had, I said it's time to write a book on silver, and got going with that. It was uh, was about halfways. It was about a year into the pandemic, and I mm-hmm. thought, you know, no one's really going anywhere. There's not a whole lot to do on the social side or anything like that. So I said, why let pandemic go to waste? And I said, um, I'm going to buckle down and get started uh, writing. And so that's what I did. The book was launched about two months ago, and um, it's gotten a great response. It's been uh, uh, in the bestseller category uh, since its launch, and uh, just very happy with, uh, with the response. Well, it is a very comprehensive book. I must say we want to touch on some of the major topics here, uh, Peter. But, you know, it's what are you, it's a 300 pages or so and, and very well documented and very well done, I, I must say. 
Uh, and there's a lot of meat uh, inside that book that I think people, if they're serious about investing and investing in silver, especially, it's one, it's a must read, I would say. So let's uh, let's get into that book and talk about some of the major topics, perhaps. Um, um, maybe just go over some of the uh, some of the major uh, topics. Uh, one, uh, maybe just go over some of the. Well, I guess you started out in your introduction. You said, you said silver is your generational opportunity. Was a quote I picked up. That sounds That's big. Right. I mean, it sounds like it's not you know like something you might want to own for this year and then throw it aside. Right but something you might want to be looking at as a major, major move and a wealth transfer, a, an asset to own for, to tra- you know, wealth, major wealth transfer, transference, I should say. Exactly. Well, yes, absolutely. And I mean, you know, the, the book is called The Great Silver Bull. I, I, uh, I'm very deliberate about that title and about the opportunity that I see. And I call it a generational opportunity because I, I look back an entire generation. Uh, if we look back, the best analog for, I think, where we are now is the 1970s. And silver performed extremely well. Gold was up 1,400%. Silver was up more than double at 3,700% mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. from 1971 to 1980. And I think that we're set up for not only a similar, but um, an even larger kind of uh, secular bull market this time around. And so when I say that it's a generational opportunity, I say that because I honestly believe that the, the stock and bond markets have had um, a tremendous 40-year bull run, uh, but that that run is essentially over now, especially with um, the way we've seen inflation start to rear its head. And, I, and I've said, uh, you probably saw this in, in that uh, presentation that you referred to earlier, and I've said it uh, several times in the last several months that I believe uh, we're in a new investment landscape where uh, inflation will be the defining feature. And so because I believe inflation is here to stay, uh, we need to look for assets that perform well in that kind of environment. And uh, stocks and bonds typically do not perform well. Um, the you know businesses have a, a tougher time because they're dealing with higher interest rates. It's more expensive for them to run their businesses, to borrow, to expand, that sort of thing. And then bonds obviously don't do well because um, investors can get better rates with the newer, short, shorter-term, uh, newly issued bonds. So existing bonds that are paying whatever kind of uh, coupon uh, will take a hit because in- interest rates go up and investors have uh, opportunities with better rates, as I say, from uh, newer, n- newly issued bonds. So sure. stocks and bonds, essentially, as I say, I think, are going to have a very tough go for the next uh, several years at, at the very least. And this kind of environment begs uh, investors to look for uh, assets that perform well in an inflationary environment. Um, mm-hmm. Precious metals are a classic um, haven for, for this. And if you look specifically at silver, it is extremely um, undervalued, massively mispriced. Silver is today more than 50% below its uh, nominal all-time high and over 90% below its inflationary, inflation-adjusted all-time high. Uh-huh. You can't say that for <laughs> practically any other asset. If you look no, at all I... the other metals, base metals, any major metal, precious metals, platinum group metals, really silver is the absolute cheapest, um, cheapest option out there. And so, as I say, it's performed extremely well in this kind of environment in the past. I think that uh, we're up for a, a really, really big repeat uh, again this time around. 
Yeah, I would think so. Uh, well, for the metal, Peter, I can understand why you could be bullish, but how do you look at the, uh, the producers of silver then? If uh, we have, we're in an inflationary environment, uh, presumably there would be costs that would be going up uh, that might affect, uh, impact negatively the, uh, the margins of those companies. Um, have you given some thought as to what kind of silver companies, silver miners, you might want to own in this kind of environment? Absolutely. So uh, you're right. Uh, inflationary effects, uh, the, the production costs for, uh, for mining silver, the miners are not immune to that. Um, the, uh, their uh, advantage is obviously, you know, being in an environment where this, the price of silver rises. And so that helps to expand their margins. Um, when the margins are being compressed, as they are right now, because silver is under pressure, uh, then obviously the ones that uh, have the uh, have the lowest production costs are the ones that tend to do the best production average uh, all in um, sustaining cost to produce an ounce of silver today is around eighteen or eighteen fifty per ounce so we 're mm-hmm. almost at that level right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe that that helps to provide a floor in fact for the mm-hmm. silver price that it could go below production costs. It's unlikely to go there and stay there for any kind of uh, an extended period, uh, simply because the miners obviously start to lose money and uh, it's not sustainable. They'll start to pull back on production and that will help to balance out um, the the supply-demand balance. So uh, around this level, $17, $18, silver becomes an extreme uh, buy simply because um, the economics tell us that it really can't yeah. be produced, uh, you know, any any cheaper. As right. far as the uh, the juniors go, well, that's something that's actually very interesting because uh, in the book I talk about how the uh, capital expenditures by uh, the larger silver producers has actually been falling for for mm. several years. So. Uh, <laughs> The output um, will need to rise at some point to keep up with demand. Uh, we can talk about that in a moment, but demand is actually dramatically outpacing supply. And so for those larger producers to be able to uh, increase demand, they're going to have to look to scoop up juniors that have attractive projects. Mm-hmm. So the juniors will actually, uh, I believe, we're going to see a, a, a considerable gap up at some point where mm-hmm. uh, the larger producers will step in and you're going to start seeing a lot of M&A in act- activity and the juniors are going to start to get scooped up. The larger producers are going to use their more valuable share uh, shares as a, uh, as a currency, actually, mm-hmm. to help them uh, to, buy, uh, to buy juniors. Yeah, well, Peter, I imagine that you'll, you get into a lot of those details in your newsletter and probably in your book as well. Um, you know, given the limited amount of time, I'd like to ask you just about, about a couple of major themes in your book. Part three discusses silver, the irreplaceable metal, and part four is uh, is unique and set to soar. Was the title of that of that section? Uh, could you just comment on those two ideas: silver, the irreplaceable metal, and why it's unique and set to soar? Uh, maybe we have about two minutes if we squeeze my engineer a little bit. Okay. All right. So the irreplaceable metal, you know, silver, half of silver is used in industry. And a lot of that is actually uh, increasingly geared towards the green economy and uh, Mm -hmm. uh, green technologies. Um, 11% of all the silver that is uh, consumed every year goes to a single application, which is solar power. 
Mm-hmm. And the International Energy Agency forecasts that the output uh, of, of electricity by solar should be up eight and a half times over the next um, about eight years. Uh-huh. So technically, if you do the math, um, solar would consume all of the silver supply in the next 10 years, uh, which can happen. And so you, you're going to have to have some things balancing that out, at least somewhat. Mm-hmm. A higher silver price is pretty much baked in in that case, as far as that goes. And, you know, silver is being used. Uh, we're finding all sorts of applications, uh, medicinal, uh, biomedical um, it's a biocide, so it helps to kill bacteria. Uh, you find it in electronics. You find it in EVs. It really is um, a metal that is coming into uh, into the modern age in a very big way, especially on the industrial side. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and if we look at why I say un- silver is unique and set to soar in part four, I talk about what drives the silver market, and so. Silver is a volatile um, metal and investment sector. There's no question about that. But I go into multiple ways that investors can balance out uh, that volatility and, in fact, take advantage of volatility. Mm-hmm. You've got um, things like uh, the fact that uh, uh, it's what I call a FOMO uh, investment, a fear of missing out when people see uh, precious metals are actually exceptional in this way. When gold and silver tend to run, uh, people will will flock to them uh, as opposed to waiting for the price to come down. Uh, when they, they see the price go up, they, they want to buy even more of it, and that helps to exacerbate even higher prices. And if you look at, uh, ultimately, I, I forecast that I think we're going to reach, um, in a speculative mania, as, as high as $300 per ounce of silver. And in the book, I talk about multiple indicators that I use that all of them, in fact, point to, to that same, or in that same range of number. Uh, so so, uh, and I base it on uh, gold-silver ratio as an example. You've got some highly respected analysts that have five to ten thousand dollar gold uh, in terms of the ultimate uh, price peak. And if I use that number with ratios, etc., I get to a, a three hundred dollar silver target. Mm-hmm. And so, well, in the certainly. last part of the book, um, I talk about how uh, you'd want to go about investing in silver and uh, the different options you have. Everything from physical silver all the way down to junior explorers and how. I I would build my ultimate um, my ultimate portfolio uh, for for silver investments. All right, Peter, I, we'll have to leave it go with that. We're just really out of time. Uh, it's this the great silver bull. You can go to Amazon.com to buy it there, and Peter's newsletter, which we'll get into the details that we don't have time to get into, obviously, on this show at SilverStockInvestor.com. SilverStockInvestor. Peter, thank you so much for being with us, and we'll look to talk to you again sometime in the near future. Jay, thank you so much, and I look right. forward to it as well. All righty. Take care. Um, all right, folks, we do have to go to break now, but Nick Rodway of Core Assets Corp. will be with us. Um, that's a company that has some silver prospects that Nick will no doubt talk about. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Nick Rodway. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Lion One Metals is focused on high-grade gold in Fiji, led by legendary Canadian financier Walter Barakoff. 
Lion 1 is permitted for production and drilling for discoveries in one of the most exciting high-grade gold projects in the prolific South Pacific Ring of Fire. Lion 1 trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol LIO and on the OTCQX under the symbol LOMLF. Go to our website at lion1metals.com for more information about Lion 1 Metals and high-grade gold in Fiji. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Your Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Really pleased to have with me once again, Nicholas Rodway. He is the president and CEO of Core Assets Corp. Uh, this is an exciting story because Core Assets Corp. is exploring one of the largest high-grade carbon replacement systems known uh, at this point in time. And uh, it, uh, thanks to retreating ice caps, the mineralization that has been discovered now had, uh, had been undiscovered, and there's lots of opportunities here. It's a massive size target, uh, both uh, silver and copper. Uh, Nicholas, thank you so much for joining us again. Thanks for having me on again, Jay. It's a pleasure. It's really great to have you. It's one that I'm watching carefully. Um, You know, I I really got interested in your story in part because uh, Quentin Henning talked about it, and uh, Quentin really looks at you and your team as a, a, you know a bunch of bright, really bright young people that he's really excited about uh, because it really does come down to the ability to uh, to explore intelligently and of course there's always a bit of a bit of luck involved I suppose but um, you know really really good exploration geologists um, are not all that common and you, it looks like you're on to something very successful. I should uh, before we get started here probably just tell people. The stock trades in Canada under the symbol CC. You can buy it down here in the States, as I have under the symbol CCOOF. 74 million shares trading today, when I looked earlier, at around 46 cents in U.S. money, giving it a market cap of around $34 million in U.S. currency. And that's really quite a low number for compared to what it looks like, um, it looks like this company might have. So, Nick, uh, the last time you were on, it was April 26th. Uh, could you maybe just give us an update of what you've accomplished and what you've learned since then? Yeah, for, for certain. And, you know, I just want to touch on something you mentioned there about our team. And, I mean, yeah, we are a very young team. And, and you know, the only thing that separates us from, from some other teams, I guess, is that we are, you know, very boots on the ground oriented. And that was what led to this, uh, you know, these targets that we're drilling. Mm-hmm. And, 
And this story, you know, started off as very, you know, highly speculatory for sure. And, and now that we, we have six drill holes in the Labrador area, you know, we can actually see some of this material coming out of the ground. Uh, so, you know, things are starting to come real. But, you know, at the end of the day, still want to remind all the viewers that, that we, you know, the assays are still pending here. And, and you know, mm-hmm. we're excited about what we're seeing, but you, you don't really know until you get the assays back. Um, so, uh, yeah, I got back from Atlin about six days ago, and uh, again, just wanted to be there and see see what the pictures actually look like in real person, uh, you know, in real life. So, so I went there, and of course, we we do see we we have come in contact with this scarn, which you know has you know high grade material that could mean something different to everyone, of course, but you know, around you know half percent to a percent. Um, copper usually in, in what we're seeing there from what we've sampled that surface. But again, you don't really know until you get the assays back. But uh, in addition to that, not only did we uh, contact that stern within, you know, over a 900-meter uh, strike length, but we also tapped into a highly altered rock, uh, porphyritic texture, they call it in the porphyry world. Mm-hmm. What you mm-hmm. expect to see from that is, is low-grade copper, um, maybe sometimes with gold and molybdenum with it over over large intercepts. And the goal at Labrador is is to drill some you know 500 meter plus holes uh, the next year and try to continue hitting the mineralization and to get that long intercept that you need for the for a low grade um, high tonnage type scenario. So you'll be vectoring in towards the uh, t- towards the porphyry. Is that the idea? Where there could be a you know really really large a structure and lower sort of disseminated grades. Yeah, that's correct. And I mean, we have already uh, got into some some heavy porphyritic textures there and potassic alterations. So, but the question is, does it get better with depth? And and you mm-hmm. know, a lot of times you won't even you won't even come in contact with anything of grade until you go half a kilometer or, or more mm-hmm. depth. But mm-hmm. we've been lucky enough to hit right from surface high grade material, and and when you're looking at your financial model, you know, in a mine scenario uh, for a quarry, you know, you want to see how quickly you can get in the money, right? And so it's very important mm-hmm. to contact, you know, material that is even low grade near the nearest surface you can to make one of these, uh, you know, mines actually work. And we've been lucky enough to hit, you know, some some very visually good looking stuff. From basically, well, from the surface. So that's that's yeah. why we're excited. And every single hole has has contacted uh, the scarn and the endoscarn that we're seeing with the copperite, which is our copper mineralization. And we even have you know boronite in there as well. Mm. Yeah, that's significant. I think with these copper uh, porphyry copper deposits and boronite. So, uh, so that's okay. So that's the scarn target, and that's sort of as I recall, looking at the map, sort of to the northeast. Then about 10 kilometers, I believe, to the southwest a little bit, you've got the carbonate replacement, more of the carbonate replacement model, and that's more of a silver target. Is that right? Yeah, so it's about 10, 15 kilometers to the southwest uh-huh. of the Labrador, and that area has about 6.6 kilometers by 2 kilometers of, of exposed, you know, massive sulfide occurrences at surface. And the, the idea there is that if we can if we can drill what we can see, again, using a prospector's approach, uh, we can hopefully tap into some of these occurrences that we can see at surface, in the subsurface. It might just be a, you know, a sniff of the material, but if we can connect with it in these limestone beds, then that'll start to build you know, our layers beneath the ground so we can kind of go back and look at our geophysics, look at what we're seeing, look at the big pictures, all of the big picture for these types of deposits. And, and we're starting at the Jackie target, 
which is an area that yes does it build some of the rocks that surface there run over two thousand grams per ton of uh, silver and also you know thirty five percent zinc lead and there's also you know half percent copper in there but wow. again until you intersect that into the subsurface it's really still very speculative for us and and uh, you know the first couple drill holes for these CRDs are generally not winners you know it's, it's and a lot of the time you don't have as much information as what we have to work with. So, so it's not going to be an easy target to track down, but uh, having the amount of data that we have from surficial mineralization, metal at the surface, uh, I'm pretty confident that we will be able to get a couple of sniffs at the very least at Jackie. And I'm even more confident uh, at Grizzly and the Sulphide City area as there's, there's a substantially more Sulphide at surface. But, you know, time will tell. Uh, we are drilling right now at Jackie. And with regard to the scar and the intercepts that you pulled, you said you drilled six holes already. Have you? You have six intercepts. And uh, how soon might we see the assays? Do you have a, a, a sense of that? So uh, I think that the first two drill holes from our first pad, which which successfully intercepted uh, the hole one, successfully intercepted a fair bit of the scar material with the calcopyrite in it, and then hole two was actually aimed to go into the por- into the porphyry, so the granitoid side of things, and, and we did uh, intercept some some spotty calcopyrite throughout that. So the, the goal of, of that pad was certainly uh, reached and, and over over-exceeded from my visual interpretation, and I, I'm going to say that we'll get two of those holes back uh, before the end of July, um, at the very latest, I would think early August, and that's just because we had those two holes off to the lab a lot earlier than when other companies in the area started their exploration season. But I would expect the holes three through six to be a nice way. I wouldn't even be able to predict at this point when three to six will come back, but it, it, it likely will be in the fall, I would imagine. All right, very good. Are you well-funded to carry out your program this year? Yeah, so we're we're doing great right now. We're just over three million left in the in the till, and we were we were budgeted for you know two point seven, and that's a, with a twenty percent uh, um, over estimate on on our budget. Mm-hmm. So we're doing pretty good. We're we've got uh, eight. We just did eight, just over eighteen hundred meters at the Labrador, which was two hundred meters over what our uh, or three hundred meters over what we planned. So that was obviously because we were we were like what we're seeing. But of course, you know, we're running a tight budget here. And we've got about a four-month window to, to do some damage this year. So we decided to uh, stop the pole six at around 400 meters, just over 400 meters. And, and we just had to move on to the silver line and, and, mm-hmm. and dig into some of those uh, prospects as quickly as possible. Yep, indeed. Well, but it's certainly an exciting story. Watching it very carefully from my end, uh, for my newsletter, and also uh, for the people in this radio show. So uh, I want to thank you very much. We are we do have to move on. It's, uh, we're out of time, but I th- want to thank you very much, Nick, for being with us again and giving us an update. Thank you for having me again. And, yeah, we're all hoping for the best and, and looking forward to the markets turning a bit and, and a little bit of luck, and hopefully we'll be yeah. on our way. Fingers crossed. A little bit of luck. That's right. And, and improving market conditions would certainly help. All right. Well, um, we do have to go to break now, but don't go away because David Stockman will join me right after – we come back, he's going to talk about why inflation is not rolling over and why the monetary breaks will likely stay engaged. So don't go away. We'll be right back with David Stockman. Follow 
follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Reina Gold is a newly listed company trading on the OTCQB under the symbol REYGF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol REYG. Its flagship asset, La Gloria, is a 24,000-hectare district-scale property in the prolific Mojave Sonora Megashear in Mexico, between La Herradura, Mexico's biggest gold mine by Fresnillo, and El Chanate mine by Alamos Gold. La Gloria has very high-grade sampling and is in the first phase of a 10,000-meter drill program. The technical team is led by Dr. Peter McGaw, co-founder of Mag Silver, and Doug Kirwin, former VP of Ivanhoe Mines. Learn more at reinagold.com. Timberline Resources is a mineral exploration and resource development company focused on gold discovery in the world-class mining jurisdiction of Nevada. The company's flagship Eureka project hosts a significant gold resource and drill-indicated upside potential at nearby higher-grade targets. Timberline Resources trades in Canada under the symbol TBR and on the OTCQB in the U.S. under the symbol TLRS. To learn more about this district-scale asset with exciting discovery potential, please visit www.timberlineresources.co. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really happy to tell you that David Stockman is back with us again uh, today. David is a prolific writer who provides economic insights in real time to his subscribers every day. As a former congressman from Michigan and head of the Office of Management and Budget under President Reagan, um, he, followed by a stint on Wall Street, David provides a unique viewpoint of what is transpiring in our economy and in our society in general. And what also makes him even more unique is his understanding of why limited meddling by government in the economy is for everyone's good and why it is essential for a well-functioning democracy. David understands why our founding fathers were wise in believing that the best government is the least government. But to give you an idea of the kind of topics that David writes about and that I enjoy reading every day, here's a, here's a couple of more recent ones. In June 14th, the Great Reckoning has begun, June 15th, calling Paul Volcker, and then more recently, July 4th, the recession has landed, the bubble's days are numbered. July 5th was, no inflation is not rolling over. No, inflation is not rolling over. July 6th was, the monetary breaks will stay engaged. July 7th, Joe Biden's strategic petroleum reserve caper, a triple bogey. Uh, and June 8th, David commented on uh, jobs, and he knows a lot about the statistics of government and how they're calculated and so forth. Uh, still more born-again jobs, in other words, make jobs, fake jobs, whatever. And then July 11th, nanny state socialism and the existential test 
of democracy ahead. Well, we can only talk about a couple of things, obviously, David. Uh, the ones I wanted to focus on primarily uh, have to do with no, inflation is not rolling over, and the monetary breaks will stay engaged. Those are the ones uh, that I want to ask David about. I should mention before we go any further uh, that you can sign up for David's very inexpensive newsletter. It's, as I say, he's a prolific writer, writes daily on issues that are, that are current and very apropos to your investment strategy. Uh, and that's David Stockman's ContraCorner.com. David Stockman's ContraCorner.com. Welcome, David, and thank you so much for joining me again. Well, glad to be with you, Jay. And uh, that was quite a range of uh, topics you cited there. So well, that's, we have a lot to talk about. Well, that's quite a range of topics. You always uh, you provide, uh, I think, provocative uh, topics and, and topics that are very apropos to what's going on, uh, very current, I should say. Um, so I'm wondering, uh, I'd like to focus on why inflation is not rolling over, uh, and then, as time permits, perhaps get into why the monetary breaks will stay engaged. Uh, the, certainly the ruling elite and policymakers were not at all concerned when we had a serious dose of inflation in the financial markets, but now the consumer prices are heading towards double-digit territory. Policymakers are seemingly in a panic. Why do you think it's, they're so concerned about one kind of inflation and not the other? Well, because I guess the first kind was a happy kind of inflation for Wall Street, <laughs> you know, from uh, the recovery time after the great uh, financial crisis in 2008-2009, the stock market relentlessly rose. Uh, every dip was an opportunity to buy. Everybody was uh, fat and happy, and they thought they were wealthier. So what the Fed was doing with this massive uh, expansion of its balance sheet in money printing uh, was, uh, you know, uh, widely applauded by Wall Street. And so they decided uh, there wasn't any inflation visible, so why not uh, pump the money even harder? I guess a lot of people know the statistics, but again, it's worth uh, remembering um, at the uh, uh, eve of the great financial crisis in early uh, 2008, the Fed's balance sheet was 900 billion. It had taken it over, you know, it had taken nearly a century to get there from the cold start when the Fed was opened in 1914. And yet, uh, by uh, the peak a few uh, weeks ago, really, uh, the balance sheet was 9 trillion. In other words, in that uh, short period of time, barely uh, 14 years, the balance sheet of the Fed expanded by tenfold. And obviously, you don't create fiat credit out of thin air, pump it into the financial markets, from which it then spreads throughout both the financial system and the economy, uh, without some pretty untoward impacts. But initially, the impact, as I said, was uh, inflated financial asset prices, uh, stock prices that went to the moon, crypto uh, prices uh, that, you know, increased by insane amounts, uh, at least uh, for a couple year period of time. But eventually, uh, you know, the, the uh, effort caught up with them as the forces which kept prices down globally uh, suddenly were disrupted. In other words, the, the reason we didn't have goods and services inflation during that decade-long 
uh, post-crisis recovery, was there was a massive offshoring of the U.S. economy to China and other uh, low-wage countries. That kept the price of uh, goods and imports uh, down. In fact, they were actually declining substantially during that period. And so we had a false sense that um, you know, there wasn't any inflation and that you could print uh, money at will. But that was just a, a one-time downshift in the cost structure of the uh, global economy and of goods and services that uh, couldn't possibly last and in fact became totally disrupted when, uh, you know, the whole uh, COVID lockdown, shutdown, uh, discombobulation of the global economy took hold in 2020. And since then, um, you know, the uh, favorable impact of offshoring has disappeared. Uh, the price of goods uh, and imports have soared. And the underlying inflation, which was always there in goods and services, has now come to the surf uh, surface uh, you know, uh, aggressively, and we're about ready to get another inflation report tomorrow, which by all indications uh, is likely to be pushing 9% year over year, which would be like a 42-year high mm -hmm. as far as I can uh, compute. Mm -hmm. So uh, the Fed is in deep trouble. Uh, it uh, falsely assumed that the happy stock market uh, was a sign that it was doing the right thing when clearly uh, it was uh, over the top in its money pr uh, pumping. Now uh, the chickens have come home to roost. The, de the Fed is way, way behind the curve. It will have no choice but to keep the monetary brakes on hard even if the economy uh, softens or actually fractures and rolled over, rolls over uh, into recession later this year, early next year, which I fully expect to happen. And so what we have is the worst of all possible worlds. Uh, they used to call it stagflation. I guess that's a good term. We're going to be still experiencing six, seven, eight, nine percent inflation, maybe even more, because there are a lot of prices still going up, like uh, housing and rents and shelter, uh, medical care. And uh, we're going to be uh, dealing with uh, rising unemployment and um, a contracting GDP at the same time. And the Fed is going to find itself paralyzed, unable to open the spigots uh, for monetary stimmies because it has an inflation rate that is three or four times uh, its target mm -hmm. and its credibility will be totally on the line. So that's kind of a summary mm -hmm. of the gigantic uh, mess uh, that we're in and of the, uh, you know, hellacious corner into which the Fed has actually painted itself. Well, are there some signs perhaps that this, uh, you know, teeny weeny bit of QT that's been put into effect so far is having some impact on prices. Oil, for example, was down seven bucks today, eight bucks. I don't know exactly. It's under a hundred dollars yep. a barrel. It was as high as one hundred and twenty. Uh, if they're, I mean, they're going to throw us into a recession. It seems almost certainly that we're probably already in one. I think that's if you look at the Atlanta Fed's uh, numbers. Uh, and and so, do you think that a recession can kill the inflation? Can they get back to that two percent target, which is stupid anyway? That they have to have a yeah. any any target, but let's that's what they were. They want to go. They say, 
uh, will what kind of a recession, how much of a downturn will it take, do you think, to smack inflation back down to those levels? Yeah, I don't see it coming back to 2% if that were a valid goal, which it isn't. We should have no, no inflation. But I don't see it coming back to 2% for uh, many, many quarters, maybe even years, because um, the, the underlying inflationary momentum is now set in. Uh, wages are rising far faster than 2% uh, in some sectors. I mean, if you look at on the margin, like, uh, say, leisure and hospitality, where uh, services are, are coming back, uh, restaurants are reopening and, you know, all the things we know, uh, you know, wages have been rising at double-digit rates. And, of course, uh, labor is the number one cost uh, in uh, uh, restaurants uh, and uh, other uh, parts of the service economy, hotels, uh, resorts, etc. So uh, those prices are going to continue to rise. Uh, look at uh, airline travel. That's mm -hmm. obviously coming back. People haven't traveled. They want to travel. Prices uh, are soaring. And there's uh, no sign that that's going to abate because wage pressures are even stronger. Then if we look at the CPI in terms of how it's constructed, 40% of the weight in the so-called core CPI, which is what the Fed, you know, looks at, uh, CPI less food and energy, it doesn't make sense to me, but no. if you want to look at that, and they do as some kind of benchmark, 40% of that is accounted for by shelter, that is, uh, rents that people pay who are rental uh, renters and so-called owner's equivalent rent that uh, uh, homeowners uh, are charged with, at least in terms of the way the CPI is constructed. So, you know, if we look at market measures of rents, okay, that come from various private uh, sources, they're up by 15 to 20 percent on a year-over-year -year basis because, uh, you know, more and more people have been priced out of the ownership market uh -huh. because right. the Fed has inflated uh, home prices, uh, you know, at 20 percent year-over-year in the latest reading. So we're going to have the CPI, which has a mechanism, by the way, in which lags what's actually happening. Uh -huh happening in the true rental market, we're going to have the CPI for rents rising not at 5% where it was at the latest reading, but it's going to be going towards double digits, and it's got all that weight. So yes, maybe gasoline prices will come off the boil a little bit, and uh, food doesn't seem to be rolling over yet, but even if it uh, flattens out, you're going to have... Um, shelter costs continuing to rise. You're going to have a lot of service sector costs pushed by wages uh, continuing to rise. So I don't think uh, that, uh, the, you know, inflation is about ready to roll over at all. And in fact, it's going to take one uh, extended period of uh, a weak economy before this uh, inflationary momentum and incipient inflation psychology is finally broken. And, and I think if people uh, believe that it's all going to be cleared up by the fourth quarter or early next year, I, I think they're really delusional. It's going to take a lot longer and it's going to be a lot more painful uh, to correct the mess that the Fed is and other central banks have generated over the last decade or two. All right. Well, certainly this inflation problem is a two-pronged problem. It's, it's created, we saw the money that was created out of thin air and distributed, the checks uh, sent out to, to, to Americans. Uh, they, 
And then, uh, so that demand spiked as a result of that. Uh, and then we're seeing, of course, the supply and the oil prices and in no small part, part of uh, what you warned about the last time you were on our show was about the time that Mr. That Mr. Putin was, was going into the Ukraine and yep. Biden was threatening his, uh, uh, his sanctions and, and uh, you know, uh, removing Russia from the SWIFT system. And at that time you said if he does that, it's crazy as hell, I think is the words that yeah. you used. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, it, you know, I mean, to what extent do you think this inflation problem is a supply problem that's related to these sort of geopolitical issues? We started out with COVID, of course, COVID, uh, you know, and, and China locking down the way they did and still are from time to time, uh, keeping supplies off the world market. Uh, so to what extent do you think it's a supply issue and to what extent yeah. is it a, a demand issue? And, and, you know, what kind of relief might, if any, we see uh, from these geopolitical stresses? Yeah, those are good questions, and I think absolutely it is a supply issue, and it's not only the sanctions war, which has totally backfired, and we can talk about some of the data that proves that, but also, uh, you know, the the green a- a- energy crusade is only compounded the problem. If you look at the data, we have had a tremendous fall off in fossil fuel investment in refineries, in upstream oil and gas uh, drilling and, uh, you know, new uh, field discovery, uh, to say nothing of regular day-in, day-out production, we've had a tremendous fall-off in investment during the last several years, and that's catching up with us. So the world uh, drained the inventories uh, pretty much uh, over the last two or three years. Then came uh, the sanctions war, Russian Supply has been reduced by two to three million barrels a day or more out of 11. Uh, That's affected the global energy balance, which is very sensitive. And when you lose supply in a context in which, at least for the moment, uh, demand was recovering and inventories were at the bottom of the uh, historic range, uh, well, of course, you had a perfect formula uh, for soaring prices. And so almost in a heartbeat, we went from a 50 to $60 oil uh, price range to 100 to 120 You know, in the last uh, couple of days, uh, it's, uh, you know, dropped towards the bottom of that range. But I don't think we're out of the woods at all, because uh, if the you know, Washington and the NATO uh, crazies continue to try to tighten the screws with even more uh, far out Uh, sanctions. And of course, Europe is trying to cut off uh, seaborne Russian oil entirely by year end. You could have prices uh, soaring not only to 120 again, but far higher. In fact, uh, JP Morgan has an analysis which shows that if they actually implemented this crazy oil price cap scheme that's being pushed by, of all people, uh, Secretary Janet Yellen, and whenever she's behind something, you need to, uh, you know, get prepared for the worst. Um, you know, prices could go to $200, uh, they say even $300 a barrel because of the disruption that would likely occur. So the supply side is still uh, tremendously at risk. The supply side is still being ground uh, lower by the lack of investment. And, uh, you know, we have the total uncertainty 
uh, among uh, producers uh, in the energy sector as as to whether they should be investing at all. Right. I mean, this this green energy crusade is nuts. It's crazy. You've seen what's been happening in Europe in the last few weeks right. with the Dutch farmers uh, right. you know, clogging the roads with their tractors because they're trying to outlaw nitrogen fertilizer. Right. Now, right. When you get to the point where you're outlawing nitrogen fertilizer and telling uh, cattle farmers they got to shoot their herds. This is as dumb as anything FDR did during the 1930s. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, again, I think it's another measure that um, uh, the supply side is uh, uh, very much at risk. David, we only have two minutes left. I want to ask you, what do you think it would, ch- it would take to cause Powell to change, to pivot? I mean, um, well, that's a big thing. You know, a lot of the uh, people who were kind of anti-Fed and cynical about the Fed, and there's every reason to be, uh, you know, these uh, Keynesian central bankers have no clue as to, about, uh, as to what they're doing. But I'm of the school that says, I don't think the Fed is going to pivot to ease at any time soon uh-huh. because they're in a total panic about the public reaction to six, seven, eight, maybe tomorrow, 9% inflation. They fear that it could lead to a political reaction that would curtail or substantially interfere with their vaunted independence. And that's the last thing they want. They're the masters of the universe right now. They're unelected uh, dictators of the entire financial system. And from that uh, perch, the, really, the the entire economy, both here and abroad. So they are going to do everything they can to uh, uh, show themselves on, to be on the case, uh, trying to grind down this uh, uh, tremendous inflation that is eating alive uh, middle-class uh, budgets and living standards. So I don't think uh, they're going to pivot this time. I think uh, they're going to have to hang in there uh, with their feet uh, heavily on the brakes, and that will put the economy into recession. But you know how it goes. Uh, You know, people will argue for weeks or months or quarters that, well, there was a little bit of a hiccup, but uh, there are signs here and there, green shoots, all the rest of it, that it's not so bad, and so therefore uh, this recession is going to be short-lived, or it hasn't even happened, or, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, right. And, and you're going to have that uh, narrative. Okay, we are going to have to leave it go at that, David. I mean, we just got it started here with things that are really, really important. I hope we can talk to you sometime soon again. Uh, but we are out of time, so regrettably we have to go. Thank you so much for being with us. Okay. Well, well folks, um, that is it for this week. Next week, Chris Powell of the Gold Antitrust Action Committee will be with me. Michael Oliver and Dr. Quentin Henning will be here to talk about Lion One Metals. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 